0: Before I share the description of episode 61, I want to make two announcements. First, I want to thank UCDA and YSU's McDonough Museum of Art for hosting DesignEDU today at the Design Education Summit Good Design Works. I want to thank R.J. Thompson for the idea to record the podcast live at the conference and for making it happen. I have a lot of conversations from the conference with many different people, eight episodes worth to be exact. It will take me a while to edit and transcribe all that audio. Plus, I have another special episode coming up to record next week. I will be slowly releasing the conference material instead of all at once, so stay tuned. Next, I want to ask each of my listeners to search for the podcast Revision Path and give it a listen. I would also challenge you to look through the episodes and assign them to your students. For example... Episode 239 of Revision Path, featuring Alex Binder, would be a great introduction to UX. Episode 207, with digital designer Angelica McKinley, is a great discussion on making the transition from print to tech. Episode 118, with Markham is awesome for all things design. These are just a few examples you can assign to your students while promoting the podcast. In the show notes for this episode, you will also find a list of design education centric episodes. Please give Revision Path a listen and promote it to your students. Now, on to the Design EDU Today episode description. In episode 61 of Design EDU Today, Maurice Cherry, content marketer at Fog Creek Software and host of the award-winning podcast Revision Path, joins us to discuss what he has learned over five years and 240 episodes of hosting Revision Path. From ways design educators can promote diversity in the classroom to the systemic problems facing black students, Maurice shares his insights. In the second half of the conversation, Maurice talks about his own design practice how studying math and English makes him a better designer, and how much the industry has changed in the past 20 years. Hello, and welcome to Design EDU Today, the bi weekly podcast series discussing the necessary competencies to be a successful designer in a contemporary, screen-based, interactive world. I'm your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Today's guest is Maurice Cherry. Maurice is a contact marketer at Fog Creek Software, a company dedicated to creating products that enable every person and every team to make thoughtful, useful software. Before Fog Creek, Maurice was principal and creative director at Lunch, a multidisciplinary studio in Atlanta, Georgia. These days, Maurice is perhaps most well-known for his award-winning podcast, Revision Path, which showcases black designers, developers, and creators from all over the world. Other projects of Maurice's include the Black Weblog Awards, the web's longest-running event celebrating black bloggers, video bloggers, and podcasters, 28 Days of the Web, and the Year of Tea. Maurice is the 2018 recipient of the Stephen Heller Prize for Cultural Commentary from AIGA, the 2018 recipient of the CL Influentials Award in the field of business and tech, and was also named one of Graphic Design USA's People to Watch in 2018. Welcome, Maurice.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me. It's really great to be here.
0: I I appreciate you taking the time being a fellow podcast runner, (laughs) whatever (laughs) the term is. So... Before I get started on my questions, could you talk a little more about your podcast Revision Path? My listeners would greatly benefit from listening to your interviews, and I think you know just talking about it a little bit will help set you know set up the table for my line of questioning.
1: Sure, absolutely. So Revision Path is an award-winning design podcast and platform where I interview black designers, developers, and creatives from all over the world. Uh, we've been doing it now for a little over five years. We've talked with designers, of course, here in the United States, but also throughout the Caribbean, throughout Europe, and throughout Africa, um, really like just across the diaspora. So when people think of black designers, they might have a concept that is maybe more monolithic in tone, uh, or, or at least in... in uh, I guess as a physical thing, they might think of one certain thing. But, um, I mean, we've had all kinds of black designers, Afro-Latinx, Afro-Asian, mixed race, biracial, et cetera. Um, and, of course, also through different nationalities, we've had you know, African designers, Caribbean designers, British designers, Caribbean, British, Canadian, African, blah, 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 etc. cetera. Um, so we've managed to really, uh, I think in the five years that we've done this, get a pretty good sense of what the design landscape is as it relates to black designers. We've kind of helped really bring, I think, a lot of knowledge about black designers to the forefront in many different industries. And uh, it's going strong. It's going great. Yeah. Great. And and again,
0: I want to tell my listeners to definitely listen to the podcast because I've started listening to it and um, why you touch, I mean, you take a very, your interview approach, you kind of get to like the nuts and bolts of some process as well as, you know, design process as well as, you know, like the, the broader scope of like, you know, diversity and design and everything. And it's so from a nuts and bolts level, it's, it's been really helpful just to listen to the, some of the episodes. Nice. Thank so, you. Yeah. So now just in our emails back and forth, um, Just you know, setting this thing up, there's a thousand different questions that you know came to mind that I wanted to ask you. So I'm gonna start off with first. I just wanted to say we have a guest in common, Edwina Moss, and she's the one who introduced me uh, to you and Mm -hmm. to your podcast. So I want to thank her for that. And so once I started digging into your work um, and digging into the podcast, the one thing like that kept Coming out to my mind is that you've done at least 240 episodes. Mm-hmm. What have you, like what are some, what have you learned? Like what is like <clears throat> the biggest set of takeaways that you've got? If you could kind of like look back on that.
1: Wow. Oh, <clears throat> there's there's I think three things. Um, the first thing is that mentorship is still something which is sorely needed in the design industry. Um, I. I have talked with designers that have come through into the design industry from many different different you know entry points. They've either went through a traditional design school, they've picked it up as a hobby, <clears throat> they've changed their career into design, et cetera. Um, and the one thing that I think links most of the guests is them not really, or I wouldn't say not really having, but them needing some kind of mentorship into sort of what the industry entails. Uh, the industry has grown and changed so much even in the five years that I've done the show, um, I think it would help anyone once they get into this or if they're interested in this industry to know what it is that they can do because the concept and the uh, – honestly, even the jobs that you can do with design are so, so varied. I mean when I started doing design in the 90s, Jesus, um, like <laughs> in the late 90s, early 2000s, you were a web designer, you were a graphic designer, you were a webmaster and that was it. And eventually it sort of, you know, broadened with web animation, et cetera. But now you can be a service designer, an experience designer, a production designer. You can be all these different types that don't explicitly fit into, you know, just working in Photoshop or just banging out code or something like that. Or, you know, even fine art application, illustration, et cetera, things like that. Um, So having that kind of mentorship, I think, to steer people towards what type of design is best for them based on their strengths is something that is really, um, sorely, sorely needed. Um, what I see from a lot of the sort of current design community is that lack of mentorship. And I think some people will try to get it through organizations like AIGA, or they'll try to get it through their job or something like that. And so there's some successes and some failures with doing it those ways, but general mentorship, I think is, is a big, uh, a big thread. That's one. Um, The second thing, I think, is just being privy to a lot of opportunities. Um, uh, You know, for—and I don't know if this is something that is unique to uh, black designers or, you know, even to black people in general, but um, what can tend to happen is that the fields of art and design are not necessarily looked at as lucrative fields, um, particularly when we're looking at them as uh, potential majors for college or something like that. I mean, I can— even speak to my own story. When I initially wanted to go to college, I wanted to major in English. And, uh, you know, after talking with my mother, I think the the thing was I should probably go and do something more practical that could make some money, like, you know, computer science or math or something. Um, started out computer science, didn't take, switched over to math. Uh, design was never really on the horizon for me. Like, I knew it was sort of a possibility. I mean, I sort of came up again in like the uh, mid to late nineties in terms of, of getting into this. So there were really no actually there were no, I think, design curriculum pro well, I won't say not design curriculum. At least not the kind of design I wanted to do. I wanted to do web design. Yeah. So there, there weren't wasn't. really any sort of <laughs> yeah, there weren't any web design <laughs> programs that you could take at colleges or things like that. You know, you had to do like a fine arts sort of thing. You had to come up through illustration or or painting or something like that. And my older brother is really like the artist in the family. He paints, he sculpts, he does a whole bunch of stuff, you know, I'm just kind of the nerd. Uh, so I, uh, I didn't really know how I could come into design at that age, you know, and part of it, you know, again, like I said, I don't know if my, you know, my mother is, is unique in this, but certainly from talking with other folks on the show, I don't think that's the case where parents don't necessarily look at art and design as lucrative sort of fields for people to go into. Um, and maybe that's because there's a lack of kind of examples to see that this is something that you can make money from and make a living from, um, which I guess sort of feeds again back into that whole thing about mentorship. Uh, so not even really knowing or having those opportunities is uh, is really key. I'm finding a lot of the younger designers I speak to that's not really an issue. Um, and, and maybe that's because now programs are more varied and things like that where if there's a certain type of certain type of course you want to take, you can do that and it's not a big deal. Um, But certainly I think for, when I say older, I'm thinking like 30 plus, you know, perhaps something like that. Um, it wasn't really an option that we knew about, that we were really that well informed about. So um, just knowing that design is an option that you can take and that it's a lucrative option, I think um, would also help out a lot more.
0: Yeah. And you said you had a third one. Do you remember what that one was?
1: Um, what did I say? Mentorship, job opportunities. Yeah. And if you don't, that's fine. I don't remember the third one <laughs> yeah no no that's fine it might have been it might have been some mix of, of the two. Yeah. Um, I, I, no, I I think I can I can say I think it's more just like professional opportunities so and and this is sort of where revision path is born out of you know it's it's sort of one thing for us to be these working designers and, and get into the field but like is this our career or is this our job? and I think for many people sometimes it can just be a job. Because they're not privy to the professional opportunities that can help them turn design into a career. So they may be, for example, a production designer at a, you know, auto shop or something like that. But they don't know that they could possibly do speaking opportunities or meetups or things like that where they can network and meet other designers or, or get privy to other opportunities. It sort of gets trapped in like um, a bit of a bubble and I'm not saying that those professional opportunities are not open to everyone, but they certainly are walled off in terms of who gets notified about them. Um, uh, I know now that I've done the show, I'll have certain companies and things like that will reach out to me to say, "Oh, well, we're doing this. Can you let your audience know, which is great. But like that didn't exist five years ago. so if there were uh, there was a conference, for example, that was looking for speakers, they may not put their call to speakers out in public or they may not put it out in a way where a lot of people can find out about it. They may just go through their Rolodex and see who's available or they may look at another conference and talk to that organizer and just sort of do like a buddy swap sort of thing for speakers. So um, being privy to those professional opportunities to really grow from being just a rank and file designer into having design as a career is something else that I think is missing. So yeah, that's the third thing. Yeah, and-
0: and I had a conversation with a student who's going to be graduating this semester in the hallway the other day. And that was his like, it's like, well, how do I find a job? (laughs) And, and I, I think design educators and I can only speak for myself because I teach, you know, a full time. That is my job. I don't, you know, I'm not a out freelancing or working for a firm and like, you know, teaching one class a semester. I'm, you know, help with administration, you know, developing curriculum. Yeah. I got committees on campus. So I don't know what, Mm. where the jobs are. I mean, I, I know what, I know where the academic jobs are. If you want to, you know, if you're looking for a teaching job, I can tell you where to go look. Mm -hmm. And so the advice I gave my student is that like, you literally just got to find out where are, where are designers, where are they having their conversations they have their conversations on Twitter. They have their conversations on Slack channels. You just need to, like, go find out where they're having those conversations and stick your hand up. I mean, that was the only advice that I could give because, you know, I think. So that's why I think the like the external mentorship from people in the industry is so important for students because there's just things that I can't, as an educator, I, I don't know myself. Mm-hmm. So going on to the, the next question, um, in your emails, you also have talked a lot about design education, and this podcast, mine, is about um, what graphic design educators should be teaching, you know, at the root level uh, to prepare students. So when, when you <coughs> mentioned design education, can you talk, like, what context you were
1: talking about design education in, as, in Sure. So I should probably, you know, let the guests know I've been kind of a design educator at some point in my career as well. I've taught uh, web design for two years as an adjunct. So I kind of have a little bit of a little, I mean, a tiny bit, I think, of insight into speaking with students and stuff like that. But particularly through the show, I've talked with design educators as well as design students. And I'm finding kind of a bit of a, a disconnect. So from students... Um, And even from some graduates, I've heard that they don't feel supported in their program when it comes to, I guess, design education because they're not learning about designers who look like them. Ah. Or, for example, the design styles and types that they're looking at or learning from are maybe Mm -hmm. strictly European and not from really any other cultures, you know, Um, or they're feeling like even speakers and things that are brought in are not people of color. Maybe they're not people that are indicative of what the makeup of uh, that particular uh, school's class is for that major or something like that. Uh, so they, uh, students will often tell me that you know they'll feel alone, like they don't really feel like they get support from the faculty, they don't see themselves reflected in the work that they're doing. Uh, they have a passion for the work, clearly, because they're in school for it. But they often just have to go strictly off of that passion there's not a way that they are connecting uh culturally to what it is that they're doing now for design educators i'm finding a kind of a different thing because they're like look in design higher education there's really not that many people of color you know black people specifically so it's harder for them to sort of get points across to other faculty members about maybe what should be taught or um Say, for example, in February for Black History Month, should they talk about black designers then? Are there black designers they can talk about then? Um, just ways for them to kind of imbue more culture into the design work that they're doing. Because once these students go out into the world, you know, they're designing for more than just white people. Like they're designing <laughs> for a multicultural, you know, world that's out there. They need to be able to empathize with different cultures to make solutions that can benefit them. So it, you'd think it would sort of make sense on that kind of curriculum level at some point to learn about that. Um, so I, I hear sort of, like I said, these different things between students and educators. Students don't feel like they get the support and faculty, I guess they don't feel like they get the support, but then they also don't really know where to begin to try to sort of make that happen. There's a few folks I've had on the show um, that have kind of went above and beyond and sort of seeking sort of outside help. Yeah, to to kind of fill the you know fill the void, which I think is is uh is really useful, but I don't know if that's scalable throughout the design industry. Or I'd say even through you know design educators and design curriculum, I don't know if that's a a scalable thing. Isn't there like a an accreditation agency for design educators? It's like the national I forget what the acronym is. NASAD
0: National. NASAD, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, I can't spit it out right now. Yes. And actually, uh UNBC where I'm teaching, we're just now starting that process of we're going to seek NASA accreditation. So I'll have to let you know if, you know, like diversity or is is a part of the is a part of it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have no idea. But the problem is the onus should not be on people of color. It should not be on, you know, uh, f- to to. Point out to faculty here's a you know to point out who we should be looking to because there are as your as revision path has clearly demonstrated as uh timothy um hikes uh his uh twenty eight days clearly demonstrates there's plenty of um uh black uh, designers
1: we we also have twenty eight days of the web. That's that's yeah. something that revision path did uh, back in 2014. And we've continued that every year as well.
0: Yeah, but that is a that was a, a tremendous resource for me as an educator that I could just instead of, you know, I always want to show examples. Mm-hmm. So instead of looking for the, you know, the the simple white canon that I already know exists, I know I can hit revision path. I know I could hit these other places and I can find the exact example I need done by somebody, you know, a person of color. So it makes a lot easier. So anyway, thank you for doing the double duty of, <laughs> of curating for stuff that, you know, we should already be doing ourselves.
1: Well, thank you. But it and is, and you're a, right. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be necessarily up to people of color. Cause what, what I, I think uh, can sometimes get misconstrued about revision path is that it's being done as a resource, which, is not why I'm doing it. If you're using it as a resource, that's great, but that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it more so to showcase the people in the design industry that are not getting um, any level, I won't say any level, but they're not getting the recognition for their work uh, that I think that they should get. They don't have, they're not being approached by another design media entity to talk about their work or do an interview or something like that. So I will speak to them and you know, at least try to get the ball rolling. But I feel like it's just important to show that we're out here. And if other people look at, you know, revision path as a directory or as a resource or as a hiring tool of some sort, uh, that's great. You know, run me my money if you want to. But I mean that's great that they're able to sort of use it in that way. But I want to be clear that my initial intent of doing revision path is not really for that. It's really more to showcase the black designers that are out there and what we're doing and, you know, give us a place to kind of shine and thrive because regular design media has been around for dozens of years and hasn't done that.
0: No. And and that's one thing that I, why I think that, um, the audience for my podcast should be listening to revision path because you do hit on just like the nuts and bolts. So I've been able to learn some things about design that I was struggling with in the classroom and that I learned from listening to your interviews because you you're interviewing their expertise right that's what you're highlighting right yeah it's inadvertently it became a resource for the lazy people but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in the nuts and but the, at the fundamental you're discussing the value of design with people who are really good at what they do right so you said that you wanted um revision path to be more involved in design education. So what are some of the design education initiatives that you are currently thinking about?
1: That's a really good question. Um I've been having conversations with a uh with a few institutions uh one that I can name and it's really only just been a cursory conversation is with the Francis Loeb Library at Harvard Graduate School of Design. Um about a way to maybe have a collection or archive of some of the Revision Path podcast episodes in their library. I know that, you know, the Francis Loeb Library is a world-renowned kind of design research institution. And so if there's a way for Revision Path to be a part of that, I think that would be great. I mean, I go to a lot of – design I don't want to say a lot of design events. I go to a fair amount of design events, um, and especially ones that are here in Atlanta, for example – Uh, We have a Museum of Design Atlanta, um, for example. I think we're the only design museum in the Southeast, I believe. I I might have to double check that. But when I go there and I'll, you know, look at the exhibits or look through the bookstores or things like that, I notice there is nothing there from or about black designers. There's very little from people of color in general. And so it, it sort of has me thinking about, well, how is it that people are finding out that black designers are out there if... There's no books. there's no there's no kind of other method for people to find out about us. Now, granted, there's this podcast. Podcasting is great. Podcasting is in right now. We don't really know what podcasting is going to be in five years from now. Is this a fad? Is this just a trend right now? And so, especially now that I've reached the five year mark, I'm looking at it almost in a anthropological way, where how do I sort of take these chronicles of these designers? and have them in a form where future generations can discover who they are and what they're about and reach out to them and learn about their work and things like that. So in terms of sort of, I guess, you know, I guess you could call that a design education initiative. I would love to have Revision Path in some sort of way be part of like design schools. Maybe it's, you know, having like a college tour or having some of the guests come and give interviews or even have find a way to take some of the episodes and turn them in some way into curriculum because granted the designers that we feature are across all types of design we've got web design graphic we've got ux we have traditional illustrators we've got animators we've got presentation specialists we've got fashion designers furniture designers like it it goes across a very wide birth of design. You know, we've got national design award winners. We've got a lot of people. So with that in mind, you know, how do you take that and then turn it into a resource? I guess, you know, sort of transmogrifying it that way into a resource that future generations can find when they're looking for black designers. You know, I don't want, you know, 10, 20 years from now people to say, oh, well, what happened to black designers? Where are the black designers? Like I did a presentation about that in 2015 called, where are the black designers? And they're out there. We've always been there. I don't think we should still be asking that question in 10 years because we're out here and we've got to find a way to hopefully, you know, get that out to students and to educators in a way where it can sort of disseminate throughout design education as a whole. Okay. And so the reason I
0: asked that in general, and it, it's because I, I hear the, I'm, I'm, there's organizations out there that they have like somebody who's like in, you know, at, you know, like at ed, the education and education outreach and I, I, the term education is used so loosely that it's sometimes, you know, cause I think of it very much as I'm assigning a project, I'm teaching you the best practices and we're going to have an outcome. <laughs> so that's why I wanted to, you know, see kind of where you were thinking about the education
1: Well, I mean, you know, sort of like you said, you know, the nuts and bolts parts of design, I think, you know, that's being taught like students are being taught about light and shadow and and about, you know, different application tools and things like that. Learning about that stuff is fine. But when they look at, you know, people who are design, I don't even say necessarily design luminaires, when they look at other working designers that are out there in the field, you know, it would I think it would help for them to have just a more multicultural view of what a designer looks like, there are several people I've talked to on the show, you know, and again, these have been mostly older designers, but you know when they came to this industry, they didn't know anyone that looked like them. They were sort of blazing the trail in a way, and I don't think we still need to be blazing that trail you know this far into the twenty first century
0: no, and again, I'm going to put it back on on the faculty at this day and age. There's enough resources out there that simply just making people aware that there are it's a diverse, you know, there's, it's, it's just not the white European canon.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's easy and enough I, for I us mean, to do. Right. And also that, you know, we don't just exist in February. I mean, I did a <laughs> recent interview with design observer, yeah. uh, titled, you know, very much the same thing that we're not just around during that time. I mean, revision path tends to be very popular during February. It's our anniversary month. Cause that's when we started, but also it's because now, people are suddenly like oh there's black people because it's black history month and now we should talk to black designers you should be talking to black designers every month yeah i've often turned down stuff in february because i'm like we're here <laughs> all the time come talk to us in march yeah or may or july or something yeah. <laughs> like it's it's great that you have this sort of interest that you want to fit on your editorial calendar but we're here all the time doing Great stuff. I mean, a black designer, Virgil Abloh, was just named to be the like head of menswear at Louis Vuitton. Like, that's amazing, you know. And I mean, there's there's so many other people that are doing great, wonderful things at all different parts of the design industry, you know, whether it's Silicon Valley, whether it's in rural areas, whether it's internationally. So, just having I think a knowledge of that that generally kind of goes through design education is what I'd like to have Revision Path become sort of in the future. So
0: you're a practicing designer, correct?
1: Um yeah, we'll say that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um you're unique in that like you said in the 90s you were a print designer, a web designer, and that was about it. And and that web design that you did back then was really still just print because you had the you know the fixed screen you know you didn't have this responsive mm-hmm. design that you had to deal with yeah. yeah and so just from i mean just from your experience um alone or you can draw on the experience of like you know you've heard from some of your interviews this is like the industry has rapidly changed Mm-hmm. how are like what are some of the things that you like you've struggled to keep up with or things that yeah just like kind of your experience in it or just you know channel your, your, audio, your, your revision path, uh, interview. Well,
1: well, I think for me, I'm finding, you know, that I have to, <clears throat> excuse me, I have to find new ways to take my design knowledge and spread them across different media. So, I mean, when, when you asked me if I was a practicing designer, I kind of had to pause there for a little bit because, uh, for the past nine years, I did have my own design studio called lunch where I did. Web design and graphic design and experiential design and all this sort of stuff for clients, um, but I stopped doing that in December of 2017 when I took a marketing position with a software company out of New York called Fog Creek. Um, and but I still do design in that position. Like I'm now learning how to edit and create videos, and I'm making, you know, print documents in InDesign, and I'm putting de- together decks and stuff like that. So I, I guess I'm sort of still designing. Um, we're we're still kind of, I guess, going back and forth on what my new title is going to be because it, it should at this point encompass designs. So I'm sort of a practicing designer in that way. Um, what I'm finding now that I have to do, like I said, is apply my design knowledge across different media. So, of course, I'm learning video now and, you know, struggling through Premiere and trying to figure that out. But even with the podcast, you know, what I'm designing is sort of an experience here through, through sound, you know, mm-hmm. like, the way that the show sounds, the way that it's put together, the people who I talk to, even how I talk to them, all of this is a designed experience. Um, I would like to eh, – I don't know. I guess I, I don't want to give myself too much credit here. But you know, I would like to say that when I go into most of these interviews, I tend to be pretty laid back and I just let the conversation go where it goes. And people will often ask me kind of what my process is. And I generally don't have a process. I just try to be intellectually curious about who the person is because I don't know who they are. I mean, most of these people, this is my first time talking to them. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea who they are. So it's like, let's talk about what you do and let's get it out there. So it's kind of a, a very designed experience um, in that way.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that because, and I'm going to bring up video because okay. uh, I, I, when I'm talking to my students I'm I talk to them like, you know, if you look at Kickstarter, those videos are designed. I mean, you could tell when like a like a short video has been created by a designer, mm-hmm. whereas you can tell the difference between that and somebody you know, like a cinematographer. And design is so applic is is applicable to more than just you know screen based web designs or like you said experiences and and things like that. That I think it becomes kind of it's really hard for me as a designer. Is like i want to I want to do it all, but it's really kind of hard for me to pick one. <laughs> yeah, so do you have a a favorite or something that piques your interest more than the other, or do you love it all?
1: i mean i've I'm always really big into branding and typography. Um, if there's one thing that I wish I did more of through my studio is it would be those kinds of projects. Um at one point in time, I was and I guess we're kind of still working together, but I was working with a typographer. To put together um, a, a series of custom fonts based around a movie, I, I'm not going to name it because somebody's going to take the idea and we're already working on it. But yeah. uh, <laughs> but to do some some typography things right there, I'm a huge font nerd, always have been, um, and so I've always been really interested in that whole thing of like creating letters and glyphs because you get so much meaning and feeling out of typography. I mean, these are just you know 26 basic glyphs but how they look and their width and their height and the you know all this sort of stuff can have these very subtle connotations to people and i think that is something that is really just dope you know like, i think that's just really cool that you can um, get such interesting feelings from just type so i'm al- i've always been interested in that i would need to- i would love to kind of do more stuff around Type and and you know even branding to that effect you know I've worked with companies before we've put together brands and logos and style guides you know to sort of take these very intangible things like colors and sounds and shapes but to use those to denote a certain tone or feeling that a business or an organization wants to put forth to the public to their customers etc. Um, I I just really that's the part about design that I really love. And I feel like those things can, you know, span across. It can span across different media, especially with video. You can do that. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I think that's what I'm really kind of the most excited about. Uh, with the way that technology sort of spreads everything, I think we're starting to see a, uh, uh, and sometimes we're starting to see like a confluence of tech and design, yeah. um, where oftentimes people will think they're the same thing. Um, I know I get that especially with revision paths, people will say that we're a tech podcast and I'm like, mm, not not really. We're in the design category, but, but, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, kind of trying to separate the, the tools from the, the methods, you know, in, in some sort of way, I think is, is something I'm also kind of interested in. Um, I've had people ask me, uh, should I learn design or should I learn Photoshop? And it's hmm. like, well, one's a tool. And it can help you with design, but like, do you want to know the the concepts behind it? You know, but because tech and design tend to be linked in that way, people think that they're synonymous and they're not.
0: So when somebody asks you that question, you know, should, you, should they learn Photoshop or should they learn design, do they see them as two separate things after you like kind of like flush out the conversation or is Photoshop their word for design, because they just haven't, they don't have the vocabulary.
1: Yeah, I think it's their word for design. I mean, certainly as Photoshopping has entered, I think, the general lexicon, uh, people are certainly using it as a verb, just like they would use, you know, Google or Xerox or something. Um, So they tend to think of it in that same sort of way. They're thinking that it's kind of the same thing.
0: Okay. Uh, (laughs) Because I just wondered, that's something that... I get a lot of student like, so, you know, when students, freshmen, potential freshmen come, you know, in for like the career day, you know, come to like the visit the campuses, they're always like, yeah, you know, I, I you know, did this in Photoshop and they're, they're talking about Photoshop, Photoshop, but they're really doing design, but that's, you know, this, they just don't have a formal vocabulary for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so again, it, that boils all the way back down to like this first part of the conversation is that you know, if they knew that that was design and not just Photoshop, they could, they'd be more, they they could see that as a career option.
1: Right. Absolutely. They,
0: in high school, when they're playing around in Photoshop, it's really more than just playing. They don't realize it. And nobody's like told them that, that it, the skill sets that you're developing there could lead to a job.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think certainly, um, uh, Because, I mean, as kids, we all kind of start out with, you know, in kindergarten and such, we're painting, we're drawing. Certainly in our early formative education years, you know, art and design and at least sort of the tangible applications of that are a big part of early education. But then you start getting into secondary education with middle school and high school, and those tend to kind of fade away. You know, you see arts programs, leaving schools, music programs, et cetera, da-da-da-da. But – that's why I say when you get to those years where it's like, okay, what do I want to do as a career? The problem ends up that, you know, people think that design or art or drawing or something like that is just a hobby. And it's not a, a thing that you can actually do as a, as a profession, as a career. Um,
0: can you talk a little bit about, um, you said you
1: also do experiential
0: design. Can you talk a little bit about first, like kind of like frame, like what are you, what are you doing that you consider experiential and like, compare and contrast it to like visual graphic design
1: sure so like experiential design at least in the ways that um we've kind of done it or i've done it before in the past through the um through my studio is kind of just designing an experience now that's uh, maybe it's called something different maybe it's like experience design or something like that but it's kind of um sort of putting more logic into design so it's a lot of user research. It's a lot of testing. It's, it's designing something that will give like an overall experience, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so no, It's not it like, brand, yeah. sort of like branding in a way, but to the next level, because it's, it's less about kind of the touchy feely and more about sort of what does the data tell us? I mean, my background is also in, you know, in math and stuff like that. So that is always going to be a part, I think, of my process is how do we lay things out, Logically, so they make sense and and things like that. So
0: yeah, all right so the the reason I asked that is Because there is a need for UX user experience like whatever the term that you want to use. I think it's all It's they're all interrelated all the names I can I understand the justifications for the different names, but to me, it's the same Mm -hmm. Uh, but it is I I I think user experience experiential design is different enough from graphic design that there is a need for user experience design being taught at traditional two- and four-year institutions. And right now, that education is being supplied, mostly formal education anyways, from like places like General Assembly mm-hmm. and other places. And so I guess I'm just like, as an educator, I'm struggling with, do I need to... Do we need two separate programs for those two different fields? Um, can we do both in one? Mm-hmm. And so I'm just trying to like, you know, educate myself and just kind of come to terms with what I what I think we should be doing.
1: Right. I mean, I think they are, you know, I think they are separate enough where they could be. I mean, I think they're separate enough where they could be sort of two separate things that are taught because I think with user experience design, there's a lot of psychology that has to go into that. Um, many of the UX designers that I've spoken to on the show at least have some sort of a background in psychology or sociology that uh, helps inform them and aid them through the UX like, research process or something like that. That may not be something that a traditional graphic or web designer needs to know in full, but it may help to inform a few things that they do, if that makes any sense. So like, um, I'm trying to think of, I can't think of a good example, but Uh, I mean, there are certainly ways that UX designers and web and graphic designers can work together because their skills kind of complement each other for the overall end goal for the, you know, for whatever the project is.
0: Yeah, no, and uh, you're preaching to the choir on this one because I tell my students, you know, take in your gen eds. Make sure you take anything sociology, anthropology, psychology, anything that studies people Mm -hmm. will be. Because you're designing for people. Exactly. It, It would be immensely beneficial to them i i some research that came out of umbc where i taught there's uh the study it had to do with like addiction but there's like the six stages um and first is like unaware the last stage is aware and fixed the bad behavior but you cannot move from unawareness all the way to solving bad behavior, you have to go through each step. And so Mm -hmm. trying to design something that takes somebody from a state of unawareness into a state of like action is not physiologically possible. (laughs) So understanding that you could then tailor your design to take somebody from unawareness to awareness, from, from awareness to research from research to action from action to like sustaining behavior and if you design to those different things you're going to be more successful so and i and anyway so i I tell my students all the time if you under go learn that kind of stuff because that is going to make you more powerful designers
1: Mm -hmm. i agree with that absolutely
0: yeah so you you mentioned a little bit also so I, I've, I've did my homework. Um, but, so you, you, I'm first, I'm, I'm always fascinated with the tie between mathematics and English. Okay. There's such as I, people who are involved in one always end up being involved in the other. And it's usually the ma- mathematicians always end up. There's something, I, I don't know how they're related, but they are.
1: <laughs> I can and tell you how they're related. How? <laughs> <laughs> So I mean when, when I was studying and I, and I I would imagine this is probably the same across a lot of math curricula uh, across the country perhaps across the world um there's a lot of structure and logic that goes into math. I think people look at math like geometry and trigonometry and they're like oh it's just so many numbers and stuff there's a there's like a there's like a, a, a like an imaginary line like a marginal line where you cross over from numbers to letters and stuff real quick, usually around like advanced calc or something like that, um, where you're writing a lot of proofs. Uh, I remember specifically we had to take a class uh, called set theory, which was basically a class that taught you how to think logically, um, that taught you how to construct logical proofs so you could prove a certain point. So for example, if you had to prove that You know, one plus one equals two. Now, granted, you know, that sounds very elementary. It's actually a pretty complicated mathematical proof to prove that because you have to define what the number one is. You have to define what addition, the operation of addition is. You have to define equality and you have to sort of put all of this stuff together to structure it so you can reach your end point. Um, There's so many QEDs that I've written (laughs) at the end of proofs and things like that where, if you've gotten through, I think, your basic four-year college uh, mathematical education, you can write an essay like that. Like it's nothing to put together an essay because structuring to prove a certain point is just – that's just how it works. You've got your your lemmas and your corollaries and you've got things that you've got to prove and it it all factors into making something that makes sense. Math really teaches you how to think. And so it really helps out with English because when you're writing, like you hopefully are writing something that makes sense, you know, uh, when you get to the end of it, it all sounds good. It's not just a big jumble of words. Um, and even, you know, and I can apply this also to revision path, you know, um, aside from just the audio editing with the interviews, we also have a blog where I serve as editor in chief. And so when I'm talking with my writers, you know, and I'm going through their, their, uh, pieces and editing, Sometimes they're very surprised that I know how to edit. And I'm like, look, I've got (laughs) – aside from years of work as a freelance writer, math has taught me how to make a proof, how to make a point. Like if you're jumping from point A to point B, there's got to be a throughput there so it makes sense. We can't just jump to this next thing, like lead into it in some way. What are you proving? How do you prove that? How are you coming to this conclusion? So it all really factors in uh, pretty simply.
0: Yeah. And so that kind of like naturally segues into my, my next question is I was going to ask you like, how, how has math helped you as a designer?
1: Hmm. How has math helped me as a designer? Yeah. That's a, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, there's the practical, just arithmetic way of course that, that helps out in terms of like, if you're doing responsive design or yeah CSS grid or breakpoints or stuff like that, it, it sort of makes sense. Um, I mean, I guess in a way, this is sort of what the the experiential design does for me in terms of like it scratches that logical mathy part of my brain when you're like creating an experience, you're creating something that makes sense, you're creating something that hopefully will evoke an emotion. So it's sort of, there's some logic, I think, that goes into that. Um, how does math help with design? There's actually a lot of drawing in math. Um, you know, there's lots of, of 3D modeling programs like Mathematica, et cetera. Um, you're I know when I was in high school, we were hand drawing all kinds of like conic solids and 3d graphs like if they give you an equation, you've got to draw the graph and you have to justify why you drew it in this certain way because it's got to like all plot out specifically. and I try to think about design in that in that very same way. I look at design for a particular project as an equation that I have to solve because that's what it is. you know you're you have a specific, in deliverable that you're providing to a client hopefully um that will solve a problem of theirs that will you know help them to attain some sort of goal and so the things that you do to lead up to that should all kind of add up in a way so it makes sense that you've reached this end conclusion you don't want to get to the end of the project and then you don't realize how you got there you kind of have to you know to use the old math adage you got to show your work you got to show how you've done that how you've gotten to that uh, particular endpoint.
0: Yeah. And so when you first started describing just now the, you know, how math and English are related, that's when I was, I saw the connection with math and design is just, I I think a lot of students, when they come in, they miss, they're missing that math logic of this plus this equals this, Mm -hmm. they immediately jump to this You know, how did they get to that point? They don't really think document and they need to be able to justify their the end solution when they're talking to the client, when they're talking to the art director by, you know, this is how we got to this. Yeah. And just from, you know, the the people that I've interviewed for this podcast, that is like one of the the biggest common problems is, you know, students just don't know how to to talk about their work to a client. They don't know how to show it as like a, how does it solve their problem? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something, you know, I just saw like, you know, like the way you described math and English, that's like a perfect, that's exactly what they're missing.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's also like the, I, I want to call them old school ways cause they're, they've been around forever, but like, you know, mathematical things like, you know, the golden ratio yeah. or, Like fractals or Fibonacci design or the Mandelbrot set or something like that. There's a lot of like really designery sorts of things that come out of math. Um, So, I mean, the fact that they're related in that way is not really a stretch.
0: Yeah, no, no, I I totally get it. Um, So kind of just noticing at where we're at in time. I don't want to take up too much of your time. So just a couple more general questions. So uh, this one, I, I ask everybody now and it is what's one piece of advice you would like to give design educators to better prepare students for life post graduation.
1: I think that educators really need to be honest with their students um, about what it's going to be like when they graduate. I think they need to be honest with that. And I'll give you, I'll, I'll tell you why that's the case. So here in Atlanta, um, I've done some, I guess you could call it consulting for certain design schools here. I'm not going to name any names, although we, there's only a handful here, so people could probably figure it out. But I've done some design consulting with different schools where what they'll do is they'll bring in designers from the community to talk to them about what are the things that they need to kind of teach students. Um and often I will be the only black person that is in the room, even though the students may be majority black. And now granted, it's, it's Atlanta, so that's not a stretch, but um, it, it, it sort of becomes interesting to me how I hear the educators talk about the students, and it's never in a positive way. It's always like, oh, they're going to go out, they're going to do whatever, you know, they're not that good, and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, well, but you're teaching them. So if they're not that good, then what is that saying about your teaching methods? <laughs> you know. Um, but I mean, when I say, you know, to be honest with them, let them know that there's, you know, a wealth of things that they can do with design. Um, just because they have a design education doesn't necessarily mean they have to go right into agency work. Um, they could go into something in-house. They could start their own thing. Uh, there is a, a great need for the skill that you provide as a designer. Now, granted, it's going to be the student's job to try to figure out how that will apply. But I think they just need to be honest with them about what is out there. Like, you know, you may not find a great job. The jobs may be low paying. You may have to move, you know, depending on, on you know, where you're located. You know, the design industry where you're at may not be the best. Uh, you may end up getting roped into something. Um, but just be honest with them about sort of what the possibilities are that they're going to have Once they graduate, I don't think it, it, it certainly doesn't help to lie to the students to tell them, oh, you're going to be great. You're going to do this, like help them out. Also what they can do to sort of help better prepare students for life post-graduation, I think is to just be an advocate for them. When you're starting out in this industry, particularly I think now, because there's so much competition for entry level positions, because again, you don't have to have went to design school To be a designer somewhere that's kind of one of the unique things about this this industry um but to like be their advocate starting designers beginning designers like juniors etc probably don't have anyone that's like advocating for them advocating for their work they have to go out there and like pay their dues in a way which i think all designers should do anyway um but if you've got students that you think are exceptional like be an advocate for them Be an ally for them. Talk them up to meetups or to conferences or to other people to let them know, like, hey, this person that I've taught is really great. You should totally talk to them. Actually, someone who I had on the show just recently, um, Alex Binder, Mm -hmm. uh, came to me by way of one of his professors. Yep. Jen Visaki. you Yeah. My former professor. uh, Look at that. She told me about him and was like, you should totally talk to him. He's really great. He's super smart had him on the show. It was a great interview. I never would have known about him any other way, I think. So be an advocate for your students that you think are really going to go out there and do well, but also like just be honest with them about what their chances are, because it's going to be up to them eventually to figure it out. But the best thing that you can do, I think, as, a, as an educator is to just, again, be honest and be an advocate yeah. for
0: them. I, I just need to be more like Jen it's it's funny, but i I'm still close with her and be keep like in Jen. Touch all the that's time, what yeah.
1: that's what educators should do be like Jen <laughs> um
0: <laughs> yeah uh so wow, there was one thing i wanted to f- you know, and I think that's and that's where Jen was fantastic is that she's rooted in the community mm-hmm. um and so she knows what's out there, but I think that's where a lot of educators fail and is that they they are stuck in the academic bubble they don't know what what's going on in the industry they like they go they teach their classes and they go home and they do their what their design work their artwork what and you know they don't do that extra step of like going and being involved in the community so they don't know that they're they just don't they don't know Mm -hmm. that what opportunities are out there to you know share with people
1: no, that's true. That's very true.
0: So I, I, again, so that comes back on to design educators, just, you know, get out there and, and network. And I think part of, part of it too, and in, in part of it for me is I have to suck up my ego because I don't design every day anymore. It's been a mm-hmm. long time since I've been a designer every day. And there are so many designers out there who are better than me that, you know, it's kind of intimidating to talk to the, you know, the, those people, but. I you you have to kind of put it into context that yes, of course they're better designers than me. They design every day. Are they a better educator? Right. Do they teach every day? No. <laughs> <laughs> so you just kind of got to suck that ego up. So I think that's also yeah. part of it a little and bit.
1: And I think too. you know, especially you know, if educators are in the mindset to learn, I think it it just always helps to be to be curious about that, to get out there and try to learn what you can. So, okay, so then you know, before I let you go,
0: um is there anything that you're personally working on? Is there more that we didn't talk about with the revision path that you want to talk about? You know, basically open mic.
1: Hmm. Let's see what's, what's going on right now. Um, well, we're going to be approaching our 250th episode in July. Uh, so that's, that's really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like that's kind of the only big thing that's on the horizon right now. There's some other stuff that is still kind of in the planning stages that I can't, yeah. Really discuss right now, but I know coming up in July, that's going to be our two hundred and uh, and fiftieth episode. It's going to come out on July the 9th. So make sure you tune in for that.
0: All right. That's all we have time for today on episode 61 of Design EDU Today. I want to thank my guest, Maurice Cherry, for being so generous with his time. I want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design Edu Today hosting sponsor DigitalOcean and CDN sponsor Fastly for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. Finally, I want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you like this podcast, consider leaving a review for it in the iTunes Store. To discover more about the DesignEDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit the show website at designedu.today. To keep up with podcast news and show releases, you can visit the Facebook page and subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes or Google Play Store. Finally, if you would like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback, contact me through the show's email address, hello at designedu.today. Once again, thank you for listening to DesignEDU today.